Can you guys hear me okay? Whoa, there's a lot of you guys. I'm surprised. Awesome. So you guys go back to the two services when? I missed that. Okay, so this is um, sort of like the family service going on. It's really good to see you guys. My wife and I, uh, Coral and my three kids, we came here. We have uh, the privilege of being here with you guys. Maybe, I think it was three years ago. So we live in Los Osos right now. And th about three years ago, just for relational proximity, we started going to Calvary Shoreline. But uh, Calvary Slow has been pretty awesome in supporting some of our work at the Prado Center. So I just want to say thank you guys because you guys let us brew coffee here every Friday for like two years. So we take about, I don't know, 10 gallons of coffee over there to serve to our homeless friends. So thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Yeah. So... Like Gunther said, my name is Andrew. I have, uh, I'm happily married to Coral of 19 years, and I have three, three babies. So, yeah, our anniversary is actually uh, five days ago, so August was kind of a big month for us. And also, um, I wish my family was here, but uh, my littlest one, her name is Opal, and she turned, she turned six yesterday. So in classic birthday fashion, we fed Opal just a, a crap load of sugar. So... <laughs> You know, Sundays, and we packed this pinata, little unicorn pinata, just full of so much candy for little friends, and then um, more ice cream, and then we fed her cake, and so surprised, she wakes up sick. <laughs> so, poor little sweetheart, just dragging her butt around our house this morning. So, it's really sad, because Coral wanted to be here. So, I am, um, yeah, I, something I really appreciate about Brian Stupart, and I'm so tempted to, like, make of him because he's not here you know what I mean <laughs> so you won't hear about it till like what tomorrow when the <laughs> so I'm going to resist that temptation but I have I've always appreciated through the years like Brian's emotional tenor of joy so that man he knows Jesus and it produces in him a level of joy that shouldn't be dangerous so also just his relational intentionality I think whenever I see him he's just like bro so he's warm and affectionate um, and also, he's gospel-centric, meaning he knows who Jesus is, and he knows how to frame that with his body. So you guys are super fortunate. Okay, so, yeah, in speaking today, um, I can go on and on about little random things, but of first importance, I want to start us off by talking about a biblical metaphor. So, oh, Bibles, yes, thank you. Um, if anybody needs a Bible, please raise your hand, because we're going to be talking about Jesus and uh, a lot about the Bible. So, there we go. So, just to lay a bit of a foundation, I'm going to speak about a biblical metaphor a lot through what I have to share. Um, in this metaphor, let me set my timer first, because I like to talk. And I have 45 minutes, I believe. So a metaphor, and I know that not everybody here is really familiar with the Bible, a metaphor is a literary device that uh, authors use to bring clarity or bring uh, kind of creative language to something that's a little complex, right? So the Bible is rich with metaphors. They're all over the place. We have a lot of poetry, a lot of narrative, so it makes for a lot of a metaphor. So this metaphor, um, let me put it like this. The kingdom of God is like a communal meal at a table, okay? 
the kingdom of God is continually talked about as if it's this meal. And, and we have uh, a lot of variety of ways that this meal is talked about. But when it comes to it, this communal meal and this table is talked about in Scripture. It symbolizes a unifying connection with our Father. So he's feeding us. Our Father sets the table. Our Father puts food on the table. And our Father is constantly inviting people to the table, right? So that metaphor is all throughout Scripture. So, but also this communal meal and this table, it also speaks to a unifying connection with each other, right? So we're, we're eating together. Like the Father has invited us. We're sitting with each other. We're dipping our chips into salsa. We're grabbing fish tacos. We're, you know, passing tapatio or ketchup or whatever you have these days. Anyways, carne asada and al pastor and carnitas. That's what I think is going to be in the kingdom of God. But, right? You. So this metaphor, we talk a lot about our connection to Christ in this metaphor. It's communion. Um, but sometimes we miss the conversation about us sitting at the table together. So the reality of a lot of what uh, I'm going to share is, is along the lines of unity. So here's a, a few biblical examples of this metaphor. Um, number one, we know, a lot of us know we've been in the church for a while, that the, one of the main metaphors um, comes from the Passover feast, the Passover meal. So in the book of Exodus chapter 12, uh, right before God rescues about a million Jewish slaves out of this uh, superpower of, of Egypt, God tells, the, uh, he tells his people, right before he sends the angel of death, you'll have to read it, it sounds a little sketchy if you don't know this story, but right before God sends the angel of death um, to bring judgment on Egypt, he tells his people, he says, hey, I want you to kill a lamb, and I want you to put its blood on the doorposts, and you're going to have this meal together, Okay. So after God delivered his people out of Egypt and they cross the Red Sea and they go into the wilderness and God gives them the law through Moses, this meal is instituted as like a yearly celebration where people come together and they remember, I was a slave in Egypt. God rescued Hello? Hello. There we go. All right. Yay. So and then Jesus took a cup of wine, and he said, this is my blood poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me, right? So we're constantly, and every time we get together, we're supposed to do this meal together. I mean, we've turned it through church history into this, this little cracker thing and then the little juice thing, which is fine. I understand organizationally why it's necessary. But it was a meal. It was a meal, right? So it's where we get together, and we're, like, jostling with each other, and kids are running around going crazy, and parents are feeling embarrassed because their kids are out of control because they just have a lot of sugar and it's it's a communal meal that we're supposed to be participating in together so in that unity of like being able to invite people to that table is pretty powerful all throughout scripture so i'm going to tell you guys a story um about me it's kind of some personal revelation about what what happened in my life there was a season of my life where god he had to show me that even though I believed in the gospel, and I believe the gospel was for everybody, there is certain people that I did not want sitting next to me. There's certain people that even though the master is the one who sets the table and puts food on the table and makes the invitation, 
I, in my heart, there's people that I must, uh, bro, you know, I'd put my, my phone on the seat and be like, ah, oh, that's taken. You know, you can sit over there. So we all do it. Um, I think as human beings, we are constantly involved in mentally organizing things. If I, if, if I have, you know, red checkers pieces and black checkers pieces in front of me, I'm going to separate them into different piles. We do that socioeconomically in class systems, right? It's really, it's really hard not to do that. Like, oh, you're, um, you have an Android. You eat at McDonald's. You're maybe in subsidized housing. Um, you're maybe, you know, overweight. Um, you don't, can't afford to shop in New Frontiers. And so I accept you as a Christian, but go over there. <laughs> so we do that mentally and emotionally, and um, that's, that's hard. So I'm going to talk about just some, some ways that we can get around that. How do we get around that? By repenting. That's what we do. So, okay, so, yeah, you know, it's embarrassing, but anyways, that's the gospel. So here... Here's how this goes. So many years ago, in a wild and colorful land far, far away, I was uh, hired as a chaplain at this place called the Portland Rescue Mission in downtown Portland. So, okay, so it wasn't that, I mean, it wasn't a long time. I'm 44, so this was 2005. Um, That's a long time ago for me. Um, in a wild and colorful land, Portland, Oregon. Who's been to Portland, Oregon? Anybody? Yeah, you. I was there. Um, I was actually there three weeks ago, just uh, kind of on a business trip and to see old friends. And I was reminded. I was almost brought to tears again at being reminded of how beautiful our God is and the variety of human beings that He makes and how interesting they are. In Portland, literally, you can dress however you want and almost be whoever you want. It is so creative and interesting. It's very dark, but you know, <clears throat> so 2005, I moved up there with my wife um, to do some more uh, biblical education at a graduate school, wanted to do, uh, to invest more in teaching and possibly teach overseas, teach the Bible overseas. So we were there, um, we mo- moved up there with no kids. Um, my uh, doctors had told us that my wife's plumbing was a little askew and that we weren't able to have babies. So obviously, we have three babies, well, three children. So, so when we first moved up there, I had a part-time job, two part-time jobs, like a you know, big payment on a truck, and we were living in a studio, and Coral got pregnant. So it was a wonderful and horrific moment all at the same time. <laughs> People are like, how are you? I'm like, I'm horrible. <laughs> I'm not doing well. I have like five major things I need to accomplish. But obviously, it was wonderful. So in a hurry, I said, oh, wow, I need a real job. You know, I had to get a real job, and I had to somehow um, provide for my family. So don't get me wrong. Like, I had volunteered at different rescue missions and served as a youth pastor and did a few different things. But I had no experience with, like, just downtown Portland, crazy homeless world. So I applied for this job, and lo and behold, as literally I thought it was a joke, they hired me. So it was... um, so, Portland Rescue Mission. Portland Rescue Mission is this five-story structure on Burnside in downtown Portland, right in the heart of Chinatown, and it was just the hub of kind of the homeless world. There's a lot of 
different uh, secular services and, you know, faith-based services in downtown Portland. But it's, you know, it's no joke. All the crack cocaine and the prostitution and the methamphetamine and the weed and the police and people dying and getting knifed and everything. It was just, you know, urban center. It's like what you're going to find in Seattle and Portland, San Francisco, Los Angeles, San Diego, New York, Chicago, Philadelphia. We don't have that here very much. I mean, 40 Prado is a smaller version of that. It's the homeless shelter right down the road. I work there full-time as a case manager. But Portland is just a different beast. So my job title was um, residential drug and alcohol counselor, right? So that, that was my job. Um, but let's not talk about the fact that I had no personal experience with drug and alcohol, and I had no training as a drug and alcohol counselor. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, I got hired, and they weren't dumb. Like, they were all, like, beautiful, like, Bob Rapp and J.R. Baker and Charlie Romantic mentors, godly men, multiple graduate degrees, lots of experience, love Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit. I'll get there in a second. So, they hired me. And I, I remember showing up my first day, being like, I don't know how long I'm going to last, but this, you know, I, at least one paycheck will be cool. <laughs> um, so I was, in, you know, I was in the first whatever year of my, you know, Masters of Divinity program, church boys school, otherwise. It was great. It's wonderful. I'm not knocking it. But for, for those of you who don't know what that is, it's like church boys school. Anyways, so I got acclimated. I got my codes. I got my computer, you know, wearing my slacks and my nice shirt or whatever. And um, I remember being introduced to my first client. So I go down to the lunchroom, and I meet this, this gentleman. Um, his name is Gustavo. So Gustavo is you know, a different name because I don't want to you know, give away his identity. But Gustavo is an exceptionally hairy, late 50s Italian guy with just a truckload of trauma and abuse. So he was my first client, right? I'm you know, going to fix this guy, right? He's like an engine. I'm going to pull ahead and, you know, fix some valves and put him back together and send him on his way. So, so I sit down to hear his story. And I, I listen intently to my new friend. I listen intently as he explained to me um, his early childhood trauma in intense detail. I lis- listen intently as he explained to me his physical and sexual abuse that he endured through uh, going through the foster system. I listened intently as he shared with me the level of brokenness he was walking as he embraced homosexuality. And also, um, he spent about five years as a male prostitute in Seattle. So I listened intently as this relationally engaging, dear, exceptionally hairy, man shared with me his brokenness. You know, he's also a crack cocaine addict, which is what brought him to the mission. So I said, you know, thank you for sharing, Gustavo. You know, he left my office, and I just just stared at my notes. And I just thought, what am I doing here? And another, another thought... Um, a, kind of a dark thought came up too for me, and one of them was, "Wow, I think he's gone too far. Like the level of sin and dysfunction that he's participated in, I'm like he's gone too far." And I also felt, 
I think he's too far gone. So there is some serious darkness living in my heart. Um, and I'll go on a couple more of my responses, but basically with this new environment, I had um, I knew the gospel. I came to know Jesus when I was 16. Um, my brother led me to the Lord, and uh, I was walking with the Lord. You know, I don't, I'm not going to go into my history, but I, I wasn't a legalist, right? Like I wasn't, you know, I would never tell somebody, oh, you, you know, You've repented and you participated in, you know, drug addiction and abuse and you left your wife and your children in other states. I would never tell them, like, you don't belong at the table, bro. I do, but you don't. I would never say that, right? But I felt that. So, and again, this is in retrospect. I wasn't like, I'm screwed up. What do I do about that? You know, at first, that's just what I felt. I was like, oh, that's too much. So, you know, I started meeting other clients and seeing other people and trying to figure out what this means to try to be a drug and alcohol counselor and how to mediate Christ in a, um, in a faith-based system where people are, you know, regularly hearing the word of God and being discipled. Um, but how to do that, I was a loss it. So, so my first response, one of my first responses is I wanted my boss to fix him. You know, my boss's name is Bob Rapp. And... You know, Bob is just a beautiful individual, you know, again, like a master's of divinity and a THM and just and so many, he just had so much wisdom and knowledge and he genuinely loved people. I would go into his office and I would explain the situation. I would say, Bob, here's what's going on and here's what's going on. What do I do? And Bob would look at me and he would say, it really sounds like you want me to uh, fix your problem. And I'm like, yeah, I do. That's why I'm here. You're my boss. You're supposed to tell me what to do. And then he would just say, he's like, you know, so you really want me to tell you what to do, huh? And I'm, yeah, Bob, I just said that. Like, you <laughs> tell me what to do. And then he, he proceeded to numerous times tell me, he's like, Andrew, I think by the power of the Holy Spirit, you can make good decisions as you love these guys. So he knew what to do. He was just wouldn't want to tell me. But he also knew that I didn't have that experience, and he wanted to force me to the Holy Spirit. And he wanted to force me to figure it out. So, and that's, I mean, and again, I had a lot of training. We had a lot of in-house training, out-of-house training. So it wasn't just neglect. But, so I continued to struggle with that to the point where, you know, I, I would come home. I'm like, I can't fix these guys. Like, they're too messed up. I don't know what to do. So, and at one point, I had actually concluded that my resume had gotten mixed up with somebody else's. And then there had been this gigantic mistake. And I actually went to my boss, my boss boss, Charlie Romanic, and I said, Charlie, I think there's been a mistake. <laughs> I'm serious. So because I was so frustrated, um, and it wasn't because their lack of investment in me. It was really, I had a real issue with not truly understanding the gospel and truly understanding the fact that um, the power and the beauty and the life of Jesus Christ is powerful and transformative. And I can still enjoy people and give them warm affection and connection, even if they're not done with their sin, right? So I had to go through this process where I realized, wait a second, I don't have to shame somebody with my voice, with my look, with my neglect, with my putting my iPhone on the, on the seat next to me and saying, go sit over there. Um, and, and in that process... I got to experience that, whoa, I saw that Jesus could enjoy me, and he could accept me, 
even though I'm not done sinning, even though I saw broken areas of my life, even though I have potholes in my road, in cracks in my window, in holes in my yard, metaphorically. Um, actually, it's true in my home also, but <laughs> um, all those things. And so Jesus took me through this process where I had to, to do justice with the good news of the gospel, that even though you know, somebody might be incredibly complex and have a whole lot of trauma, I can still love them, and I can still see with eyes of faith that they have a home in Jesus, that his life, death, and his resurrection really can heal and really is for everybody. It's not just for me. It's not just for people who are maybe a little cleaner. So I had to go through that process. So Charlie Romanek looked at me and said, Andrew, go back to your desk. He's like... Look, he's like, you're, you're doing just fine. And, then, you know, and he, I met with him weekly, and he would constantly mediate to me who Jesus was and what it looked like. And in that process, they, you know, they sent me to some state-funded you know, training for drug and alcohol counseling and the rest. But my response at the very beginning was um, I, I wanted out of it, um, and I felt like some of these people had gone too far. So here's the thing. So I knew... Um, as a lot of us do, that there is uh, epistemology is like the study of knowledge, that there's an epistemological interaction between knowledge and experience, right? I can know something. I can learn. I can read all I want about building a Volkswagen engine and, like, watch YouTube videos and do this and that. But until I actually do it, I'm really not going to know, right? I'm not going to know. So I knew that there was something wrong with my knowledge and my experience. And I, I... started to ask Jesus and ask friends to pray for me. Like, I really don't have enough love for people, and I don't understand the gospel. And I thought, well, if the gospel, if I don't mean the gospel works for them, then there's something wrong with my understanding of the good news of the gospel, right? And part of it was, uh, was that I believe that I belonged at that table, right? That metaphor, I belonged at the table, right? I was able to receive food from the Father and hang out with my friends, but there's some people that's like, that's just too far, man. So I had to go through that process of learning that, that nobody belongs at that table, right? That because of our brokenness and our sin and our rebellion before a holy God, nobody deserves to be connected to the Father, right? It says in Titus, I'm going to use one hand now, Titus 3, So, maybe we'll just start with Ephesians 2. So, you were dead in your sins and your transgressions, right? Ephesians 2 starts off with saying, you were dead in your sins and your transgressions in which you walked, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all once formerly lived in the lust of the flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And it doesn't matter how we indulge that. It doesn't matter the level of separation that we have between us and Christ, uh, between us and God. That level of separation brought death. Everybody, whether it's Gustavo or whether it's, you know, Mother Teresa, it doesn't matter. We all stand as sinners in the sight of a holy God. 
But then Ephesians goes on to say, but God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. For it is by grace that you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God so that no one may boast. So nobody belongs to be at that table. But God invites all of us, regardless of our socioeconomic class, regardless of how far along we are in our sanctification, we all have a home at that table. And we have no right to say to anybody, you don't belong there. And also, just so there's not any confusion, so Jesus invites people to participate um, in salvation and connection to him through repentance. So if somebody comes to that table and is like still participating in active, unrepentant sin, and says, well, I want to be a Christian, but I don't want to follow Jesus, and I'm not really going to do any of this stuff, but I like hanging out with you guys. There's a point where it's like, well, repentance really is the gateway into this table. So this isn't a universalistic message where everybody has access to Christ. His warmth and affection is for everybody, but, but salvation is through repentance and belief in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So... In this process, there's a few things that took place in my life to help uh, teach my heart about what, I, uh, about what I needed to hear. So number one is that the, um, I, I kept going back to the parable of the prodigal son, right? You guys know that parable where there's a father that has two sons. Let me retell it. It's in um, uh, Luke chapter 15, 11 through 52. So the story of the prodigal son, there's two sons um, and a father. And I think of it in the, along the lines of maybe it's, uh, it's like a father that has a roofing company in Bakersfield. And he has his two sons. And, you know, one son is pretty young. And he's, you know, maybe 21. He's worked with his dad, you know, doing roofing for a couple years. And he says, hey, dad, I want my stock options and I want out. I want to be done. I want my inheritance. Give me my money. I'm going to take off and start my own business in Sacramento. Right? So his father's super hurt because he doesn't have a lot of money, but he loves his son. He wants to give his son a bunch of money. So just like in the biblical story, the son takes the inheritance, and he takes off, right? He leaves. The older son stays with his father, you know, working in that hot sun and roofing day in and day out, um, working with his dad. The younger son moves to Sacramento, pays five grand to get a sleeve of this ridiculous tattoo. He buys himself a Harley Davidson and a boat and a big lifted truck. And then he starts going to, you know, stripper bars and dating strippers. And, you know, the older brother's seeing all this stuff on Facebook, right? He's like, Dad, he's running amok. Look what he's doing. He's spending all your money. He's like bringing shame to the family name. So the younger son, you know, uh, instead of starting a business, he thinks he's starting a business, but what he's really doing is spending all his money, you know. Spends all his money. Nice apartment downtown Sacramento. Boat, big, big lifted 1973 Chevy truck with like a 454 and, you know, 36-inch, you know, what, 20-inch tires and like 36s, all that, right? Yes, I want that too. Um, so, guy blows through his money, you know, some of the strippers rob him, he gets beat up by their boyfriends and, you know, loses his money and the son um, ends up working at a gas station, right? Totally out of money, still kind of addicted to methamphetamine, using a ton of weed, drinking, and he thinks... My dad lives in Morro Bay 
with my brother. I'm going to die out here. I'm going to go home. Right? So the younger brother goes home. And the father, you, you see the story in Luke 15? We have very little kind of solid evidence that the son was even like 100% repentant, right? In the parable of the prodigal son. It's not like we have the, Jesus says in detail, his clean, like authentic repentance, right? So the son comes back to the father, and the father's response, right, is he comes up with his sleeve and his rags and smell like gasoline from working at a gas station. And the father runs out and hugs him. He says, you're back. I love you. I've missed you. All right, and he calls everybody on the phone. He says, let's go to the Madonna Inn. We're going to have steaks. My son is back. Right? That level of um, unyielding, beautiful, over-the-top affection and warmth for somebody that is, hasn't really made the best choices. Right? So that, that's Jesus, you guys. That's him in not only do we need to see ourselves in that light when we make those mistakes and we have those areas, and again, like in a crowd this size, there's all sorts of things going on, right? You, you name it. We've all had so much abuse and we're participating in casual sin or dedicated sin or, you know, unknowing sin. We're all so broken. But on a first level, we need to see that the Father is warm and affectionate towards us at every level. And that his care for us, is mediated through Jesus Christ, is not just for us. It's for the people that we don't think fit in. You know, so the father ran after him and hugged him. So that, that's the, the parable of the prodigal son. I soaked in that a lot, and I saw that I was the older brother, right? Because what did the older brother do? He went to the party at the Madonna Inn. He ordered his steak, you know, come on. But he took it outside. You know, and he's like, I'm not going in there. He's like, I have nothing to celebrate. That young punk used up my dad's good name. He screwed up. He's like, I, 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 can't, I can't do it, you know. And then the papa comes outside and says, hey, what are you doing out here? And the older son says, dad, you never threw me a party. You know, you didn't invite my friends and even go to Taco Roco or Sylvester's. I didn't get squat. <laughs> right? So when the father looks at his son, he says, I love you. Everything I have is yours. So in that, that message I needed to hear as, you know, as a white kid in the midst of this, you know, this world in downtown Portland, that I was the older brother. I felt like I had the right to say, hey, you've gone too far. So, but the reality is that I was going too far. And that many of us go too far, you guys. It's so easy to get caught up in our daily routines of like Whole Foods or Trader Joe's and our cars and our mountain bikes and our iPhones and our, you know, all these things and forget about we live in a highly segregated town, right? We really do. There's a whole world of believers, you guys. So I work at the Prado Day Center. I have mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters that are homeless and from such a different economic strata, but so many of them I love them, and they love me, and they feel very isolated. They feel very lonely, and they, a lot of them are suffering alone without a lot of connection and attention from the body of Christ. And don't get me wrong. Like, we talk about evangelism in the poor. Everybody gets guilty, right? Oh, I'm guilty. I don't serve the homeless. It's not where I'm headed, but the reality is it's, it's still 
my goal is to help soften your heart to that group of people. Because as a church, we're pretty upper middle class. We just are. You don't have to feel bad about that. Um, but that just is. But because of that, we are more, we have more of a temptation to even unknowingly, right, even unknowingly say, uh, this spot's reserved, okay? I'm going to come back to this, but what would it hurt when you drive up to the guy asking for money at Trader Joe's? What would it hurt to not furiously try to change lanes or look the other direction? What would it hurt to just roll down that window and say, hey, I just wanted to say hello, good morning, right? And look, I, I am a, a professional case manager guy. So the Department of Social Services, the, those services, uh, I know them in and out, and the Department of Rehab and Social Security and Drug and Alcohol Counseling and County Mental Health and Medications, those things are important. I'm not saying, let's just all go downtown and like hug people and love them. There's a real reality of like, how do we, how do we care for people in those dark places and be wise and missional about it? We don't just fly to Papua New Guinea and set up a tent and have a revival. You know, we think deeply about who people are, about where they're coming from, and we, we frame the message of the gospel to make sense to them. But I'm still going to come back, and it's like, what would it hurt to make that kind of eye contact? Or, you know, Brian, who sits in front of CVS in downtown Slow, right? He's always there with his daughter. To stop, he's a believer, you guys. <laughs> There's a lot of Christians in downtown Slow that, yeah, they're running amok off and on, and yes, a lot of them use the money they get from, you know, asking for money flying a sign for drugs and alcohol. So some of them, some of them are Christians, but man, they are, they are just, they're sliding, and they're walking in despair, and they're walking in hopelessness, and they're believing the lies of the enemy, and they're walking in deep loneliness. So again, part of my, um, I'm not just telling a story for the fun of it, my goal is that I want to see some of us transformed and at least have a little more warmth and a little more eye contact and a little more connection with that group of people. So, water. I also learned just through my program that theologically, God has an incredibly passionate heart for um, people who are in crisis. So I'll just put it this way. There's this Hebrew term, beger. It means uh, the stranger, the alien, um, essentially the wandering, rootless, non-native. And there's, um, there's a couple passages. I won't read them right now. But uh, Leviticus 19, Numbers 15, there's 52 passages in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, that talk about the place that the stranger is supposed to have in early Israel. So it's pretty... It's um. It's shocking. There's one verse, I don't remember which one it is, but just to paraphrase, God essentially tells Israel, if you oppress the stranger, I'm personally going to show up and kill you and your whole family. <laughs> so you got to read it. Look up the stranger and the alien, like God's heart for them. But he calls him and says, hey, you were a stranger in Egypt. You were a slave. How dare you treat other people like that? Remember where you came from and love the stranger." You know, that's why when they harvested their fields, they leave the corners of their fields for the stranger and the alien. So in the tribal reality of, you know, whatever, 1000 B.C. ancient Israel was um, 
the tribal cultural ethic with strangers and rootless wandering non-natives, they were used for target practice, you guys. There's no social services. There's no general assistance or social security. You kill them. But with God, he so radically associates himself with the weak and the poor, as opposed to those other deities that they associated themselves with the powerful and the rich and the wealthy. Our God associates himself with the weak and the poor. So a lot of time uh, studying through um, what that looks like, and even you look at the time of Solomon in, uh, in ancient Israel. The time of Solomon, there's 152,000 of these guys, rootless, wandering non-natives in that community being cared for, not perfectly. But, you know, and all throughout, all throughout the Torah and the writings and the prophets, God is constantly coming back and saying, using their treatment of the poor and of these wandering people as a litmus test for their faithfulness to Christ, okay? So it was just all throughout Scripture. So another, I got two more stories, and, and then we'll conclude. So another, another important element in, in my life in going through this process of learning that the gospel is for everybody and not just for me was that I had a, a gentleman, his name is Brian Thomas. He was a short, super buff black guy. He was a fellow chaplain that I worked with at the Portland Rescue Mission. So Brian just genuinely loved people, and Jesus had transformed his life. He had you know, a lot of crack addiction in the past for him and a, a lot of trauma in his own life, but he found a good church, and he went through that whole process, and that guy genuinely loved people. He was making six figures as a salesman. He would come downtown Portland after work, and sing songs, and spend time with people um, in front of the mission, just on his own. Um, part of it was that pretty much everybody, you know, half of the community was his cousin. You know, he's like, hey, cuz, like it really was his cousin. So, so our organization hired Brian, um, and he took like a, a huge pay cut. And he started to love people, you know, in my world. So, Brian was super helpful for me because he greeted everybody with warmth and affection. The warmth and affection that I would only use for people that I really cared about. But I started to realize not everybody was his cousin. He was still greeting people with sincere, warm affection, even though he wasn't necessarily related to them. But he knew that the beauty of Jesus Christ was for everyone because he had experienced it so deeply, he was able to say, bro, I love you. I know you're not interested in stopping what you're doing, but you need to know that I love you and that our Father has a place for you at his table, that you are not alone, that there is hope for you, that you can have your family back. I know what happened to you. He's like, I love you. Can I pray for you? So I started to see that, and I'm like, that's what my life is supposed to look like, right? That's what our life is supposed to look like. So... And, uh, and look, and I, the, we don't have time to touch on, look, there are toxic people in our life also, okay? And there's some people that we have to be very careful with. We don't want to warmly invite them into our lives because they're destructive. So, again, we don't have time to talk about the nuances of relational engage, engagement with difficult people. But, so... Yeah, Jesus is still changing me. He's still taking me on that process. Um, but it was a, a wonderful season of life where I realized 
I don't have to walk in, in a sense, power and control trying to fix people, that I can slow down and I can believe the beauty of the gospel and I can invite other people into the warm affection that my Father gives to me. So, in closing, I think I have a couple minutes, maybe more. Um, There's a, a statement that Uh, one of the directors I used to work for would say on a regular basis, he would say, the mud needs the church and the church needs the mud. So with no uh, offense to my homeless brothers and sisters. But what he was saying is that engaging people who are homeless or in crisis is not a a parasitic adventure, you guys. It actually is a symbiotic adventure. There's a mutual benefit. It really is. There are so many people uh, in my experience with the homeless who have mediated his love for me in ways that I've never experienced before. I'm telling you about this one guy. His name is Gregory. So Gregory was one of my clients. Um, and Gregory is a, uh, a late 40s, developmentally delayed, uh, exceptionally hairy, again, <laughs> exceptionally hairy, just dear man. He's on way too many meds, but he is probably developmentally maybe like six or seven. So I love this guy, and he loves me. And here's the problem, is that when I'm riding around downtown slow on my bike or walking, whenever Gregory sees me, he says, Andrew! And he will run across the street with his arms And he, uh, his unhindered expression of affection is something that when I'm not walking with Christ well, and I will put it that way, when I'm not walking with the Lord, I'm stressed out, I will duck into an alley to avoid this guy. Because he's, man, he's messy. He's messy. Drools a little bit. Exceptionally hairy ears. Um, actually, one time when I was working with him, I bribed him uh, to, to go to Supercuts to cut his, to trim his ears with a double scoop of ice cream. <laughs> I'm like, bro, do you want to earn some ice cream today? He's like, what? I'm like, I want to get you some ice cream. He's like, really? What do I have to do? I'm like, let's get rid of those guinea pigs on your ears. <laughs> so when he sees me, he will assault me. Um, so it happened a couple weeks ago, and I just, it left me in tears because he, he so mediated the love of Christ to me in a way that I haven't experienced in a while. So he ran across the street to me with his, you know, so with his hugs, he just, he hits, if he was ordering a pizza on a hug, it would be the works. So for him, he does, you know, for some bro, like, you know, a lot of bros, like, hey, bro, how's it going, like the side hug? So Gregory does the, he does the full arm extension, full arm extension, and then he does the, the pull in, <laughs> right? And then he does, well, watch the hand, then he does the rub, <laughs> And he does this squeeze <laughs> with the other arm. <laughs> and, then, and then, you know, he's so sweaty like a few weeks ago. And he did the face rub. Oh, bro. And then he kissed my neck. <laughs> and I just, I just held him. And we do this dance. He says, Andrew, when are you going to come back and be my case manager? And look, I wasn't the best case manager. Um, and I said, no, I'm not doing that. And then I would tell him, we do this regularly. I said, Gregory, you are a valuable human being. So Jesus must love you so much. And then he would say, you know, Andrew, he's like, my dad never told me that. 
He says, I know. That's why I keep telling you it. Hold each other, and then we'll say goodbye. So I want to propose to you guys that um, these weaker elements in our lives, um, Jesus has some work to do in you through them. And if, and if in your life you don't have any of those, you know, I'm, I'm going to speak really generally, right? Those weaker elements, those people outside of your socioeconomic bracket, those people that are a little more complicated, they need you and you need them. And I will say that the body of Christ is absolutely destitute without them at the table, okay? So I love you guys. I'm going to pray because I think it's time to go. Lord Jesus, thank you for your mercy. Lord, thank you that it's not because of our righteousness that we're healed. It's not because of our good works that you love us and you care for us, Lord. It's not because um, there's somehow something uh, productive about us being in your kingdom. But Lord, you saved us in spite of ourselves. Thank you for your warm, delicious grace and your mercy, Lord. I pray that those of us here today that don't believe it, Lord, that have a hard time even seeing that about themselves, Lord, that you would work in our lives, Father God, to dismantle those lies so that we can receive that Jesus is the bread of life. He said, I am the bread of life. He who eats of me will never hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. Lord, like you stood up at that feast on the last on the on, on the day at the feast, and you said, Is anybody thirsty? Let him come to me and drink. Lord, may we be found drinking deeply from you, eating deeply of you, Lord, so that we can actually give that same level of warmth and affection and engagement with your gospel to the people around us, our wives, our kids, our roommates, our spouses, and the other people that we are not necessarily inclined towards. Lord, I love you. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for the body of Christ here. Um, Teach us, lead us, help us. In Jesus' name, amen.